Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital and chief quality officer for the Baptist system. Well, guys, today we are so honored to have Doug Lamav on the podcast. Doug is the founder and chief knowledge officer for Teach Like a Champion. He's also co-authored a book uh, with the same name. He's also authored or co-authored many other books having to do with teaching and coaching. And today we're going to talk about, uh, primarily, talk about his uh, one of his latest books called Practice Perfect, uh, 42 Rules for Getting Better at Getting Better. Well, Doug, once again, thank you. And um, before we uh, dive in, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, great. Well, thanks for having me on the on the podcast, by the way. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I started out life as an English teacher um, and then okay. uh, uh, started a school in Boston with some other people. Uh, it was a charter school. And so we kind of, uh, you know, sp- we kind of reinvented schools. We built it as an, in, uh, you know, sort of underserved neighborhood in Boston and uh, somehow ended up becoming the principal of that school. Uh, and then I went to business school thinking about how do you scale schools and how do you solve the sort of large scale problems of public schools? If you think about it, there is not really a school district in the country that has achieved outlier results. You know, there's has been significantly more successful with uh, with kids, especially, you know, uh, kids who don't grow up on the on the leafy side of uh, of the economic gap. Um, there hasn't been a district in the country that's been able to do that. And so I think that has to, you know, has to cause us to ask questions about a structure in which there are no outliers. So in starting the school, one of the things that I realized really quickly is that we would we would hire really smart, motivated, well-intentioned people who would walk into the classroom and would want to change the the equation of opportunity for young people. And they would come back into uh, my office as the principal, sometimes in tears, and they would say, what do you do when? And the when would be you have a kid who works so hard and she never seems to understand what she's reading, or you have a kid who's um, who's uh, who's really defiant and really difficult. And you walk into the classroom and you say, "Okay, guys, let's sit down and get ready to work. And he's bigger than you. And he says, you sit down. Right. (laughs) Then what do you do? So I started um, I was recovering from an MBA at the time and I ran these sort of regression data sets where I tried to find positive outliers, where are the teachers who teach in high poverty environments who get incredible results? So I started to study them, make little, I was an athlete growing up, so I made little game film videos of like one minute of the amazing things that this teacher did. And that became my book, Teach Like a Champion. And so I started doing professional development for teachers. And one of the things that we found really quickly was that, um, was something we call the get it, do it gap, which is we could do a workshop where we could show you video of a great teacher in action and you could understand perfectly well what you wanted to do in your classroom. But even doing very simple things in a complex environment is incredibly hard. So like one very small example would be wait time, right? Like the average teacher leaves less than a second uh, before taking the first answer from students. And one of the most important things you can do as a teacher is slow down and give students two or three seconds to think about their answer so that so, so that it's not a race in their minds. But it is actually incredibly difficult to walk into a classroom with 30 kids on on the Tuesday morning after Halloween Mm -hmm. uh, when there's 6,000 things on your mind and to execute that. And so we started to build practice into our workshops. 
And at the point that we're doing this, I mean, we would get in front of a room full of 100 teachers and we would say, great, now that we've talked about wait time, now we're going to have you practice it. And people looked at, literally looked at us like we were absolutely crazy. Uh, but if you, you know, I'm sure you know this as a surgeon, if you if you want to be able to perform, you know, it's a performance profession. If you want to be able to do it live, you have to you have to expect to rehearse it and mm-hmm. build muscle memory. And so we learned a lot about practice doing this. Eventually, I think that, you know, the field of teaching has actually really moved in the last 15 years and practice is very common now for teachers. Um, but the, the original book, Practice Perfect, was sort of about that journey of understanding how do you get people better at executing things that they want to do in a complex environment? And these are sort of our rules, right? <laughs> our rules derived from, uh, you know, from a thousand mistakes. Sure. And, you know, um, you know, the y'all's mission at practice at Teach Like a Champion is our mission is to dramatically improve teaching through the study of exceptional teachers. So, uh, you know, obviously you guys have done a lot of research and a lot of uh, observations. And, you know, I when I was thinking about what we we're going to talk about, you know, when you're talking about practice, I love the joke where the guy's in Manhattan. He says, hey, ask somebody, hey, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the guy says, hey, you practice, man, that you practice. And, practice, practice. you know, we always heard that, you know, practice makes perfect, but uh, yeah. it seems like that perfect practice is what you need. And, 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 and that there, you know, I've never really thought that how we practice can yeah. can dramatically affect how quickly we learn or how, how how we learn in general. Talk to us a little bit about that. And, and yeah, I mean, practice is a great thing, but uh, but it's easy to have practice be not that effective yes. uh, and 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 i think that that's you know practice involves people hard-working well-intentioned people committing their time and they deserve to get better as a result of it you know one of the most common things that often happens is um you know a habit is a hard thing to change I'll just, i'm going to tell you a quick story here uh, i spent mm-hmm. a week in august working with um Australia's national rugby team. So they're preparing mm. the rugby. I don't know if all if, if you know this, your listeners know the rugby world cup just finished. They were preparing for the rugby world cup. And so um, my job is to watch them practice and to give them feedback on practice. And oftentimes a coach will say, great, we need to, uh, you know, in this case, it's like, we need to, we need to fire on both sides of the rock. I won't even tell you what, what that, what that is, but it's, it's, it's a rugby term. Mm-hmm. And then they will uh, players will go out and do it and the coaches will assume that the players are doing it, but actually the players are not doing it. And so one of the things we did is we assigned one coach after after the lead coach said, OK, the purpose of this exercise is to practice, you know, doing this this activity, making this, this specific uh, tactical adjustment uh, on the field. Watch how often players do it. And for the first practice, it was something like 20 percent. Right. And the players intended to do it. They wanted to do it. But as soon as the ball started moving, right, they're distracted by by the ball and they fell back into their old habits. And so, you know, one of the simple so we we just came up with a very simple fix on this, which is they would play for five minutes and one coach would just be counting how often and who did this action successfully. And then he would feed that information back to the coach and the coach would say, pause. You know, I know we're working we're really hard at this, but we were 20 percent there. We need to be more attentive to it. You know, uh, even having the players talk about what's keeping us from doing it. Great. Let's focus on it a little bit more. The next time it's 40 percent. The next time it's 60 percent. But it's actually stunning how often 
people practice doing it wrong or people simply don't practice doing the thing that you ask them to do. And as a coach or a teacher, your working memory is so strained, paying attention to what am I going to do next? And there are 30 people in the room that you, you, can sim- you can simply fail to see that the quality of practice is actually very low and I'm more deeply inscribing poor habits. But I was thinking is that you, you're talking about, you know, these rugby players um, practicing and, you know, that's that's a physical skill. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talk on this podcast, we talk a lot about leadership development and 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 and, and you know, leadership is a skill that can be developed and be practiced as well. When you're when you're thinking about practice and improving the way you practice, do you approach it differently? Yeah. Whether it's it's trying to hit a baseball or hit a golf hit a golf ball versus you know trying to get better at public speaking or get better at at holding that uh, you know a, a, a monthly meeting with your one on one. Yeah, you absolutely do. I mean, I think you know whether you're, I mean that one of the primary distinctions I might make is between explicit and implicit learning, which is like things that you're intentionally thinking about doing. When I'm running my meeting, I want to make sure that I begin by asking people questions, right? Like that's uh, that's different from a habit. Like I want to change the position of my elbow when I'm suturing during surgery, which is something that I don't actually think about, right? And so uh, there are, you know, yes, you would want to adapt your practice design. But I also think that there are principles of cognitive science that inform all sorts of practice that are um, easy to overlook, routinely violated, and critically important. And maybe I'll do one of them, I think, is just one of the most important factors in any learning environment is the um, is the relentless influence of forgetting. We rarely think about this, but we have forgotten almost everything that we've learned in our lives. Hmm. And if you doubt me, have children, wait 15 years and try and help them with their history homework right? or their math or their math yeah, or algebra. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so one of the things that we know is that at the end of a practice session in something, you will get a false positive because people will have in their working memory the thing that they've been practicing and they will be able to do it well. And then they will leave the room and the most inevitable force in learning will start to occur, which is forgetting. And an hour later, they'll remember half of it. And a day later, they'll remember a third of it. And six days later, when the meeting rolls around and the thing that I thought we were clear on happens, um, we will remember only a fraction of it. And so one of the most important things in in learning is what I would call space practice, which is there's mm-hmm. there's almost nothing that you can learn in a single iteration. Right. This is this is like this. I think this is. A, uh, this is a little bit of like an earth-shaking realization, especially not to go back to sport constantly, but I talk to like, you know, professional athletes, coaches of professional athletes about this all the time. They'll install something about their game plan. It's an NBA team. At the end of practice, they will see guys doing it and they'll be like, great, we all we all understand what what our pressing defense looks like. And what they don't factor in is the inevitability that they're going to start to forget. And mm-hmm. that in order to build something, in order to build it into long-term memory. And by the way, a cognitive scientist would say that the definition of learning is a change in long-term memory, that unless something has changed in long-term memory, nothing has been learned. Mm. And so I could talk about something in, a mo- in the moment and appear to understand it, but unless it changes in my long-term memory, it's not useful to me. 
um, that in order to change long-term memory, I have to allow for forgetting to bin, begin to occur and then come back to something and force people to bring it back into their working memory. And when they do that, by the way, a good definition of working memory is like your conscious thinking. If you're consciously thinking about something, you're using your working memory. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about the role of repetition, if I had a practice where I practiced something, I practiced um, slowing down my public speaking and trying to speak at a slower rate for 45 minutes. That would be helpful. But what really builds long-term memory is having to practice again after a period of forgetting. And so the repetition would be much more productive if I did it for 15 minutes and then paused and did something else for an hour and came back to it. During that you know, that time when I did something else, I would have forgotten a lot about speaking slowly and then I'd have to, re- I'd have to think deeply about it. It would encode it better. And then maybe I come back a day later and three days later and this spaced practice or spaced retrieval practice which is bringing things back into working memory after a period of forgetting is actually the key to building long-term memory and so that influences how you know how i have to plan like it would be great if we could sit down and talk about something and practice something once and have it change change our behavior but generally speaking it doesn't work that way you know it's fun it's it's very interesting you mentioned that because uh one of my hobbies is i study spanish and and, and 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 learning learning Spanish vocabulary, there's a program out there you may have heard of. It's called Anki, A N K I, and it's, it's I use it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's flashcards. Yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah. you you put okay, you look at a word and you you rate it as easy, medium, hard, difficult. I can't remember exactly, but but depending on how you ranked it, uh, it it shows up either more frequently or less frequently. And and I just you know, I guess even if you're trying to learn any type of skill if, if you had a a way that you could document that you could say okay practice yeah. this and well this was easy so you're not going to practice it till maybe three or four days but things that are harder you're going to practice it in, in yeah. two hours or something like that that that's really interesting can, can i just uh just talking a little bit more about like designing practice around what we're trying to learn i think the process of transfer which i would define as the thing that I practice showing up in the game, mm-hmm. you know, the game being a metaphor for the meeting that I'm trying to run, the surgery that I'm doing, et cetera, whether, whether what I practice shows up in the performance environment, I think is governed by two factors. One is encoding strength. How well do I understand the thing that we're talking about? Um, and retrieval strength, which is how easily can I find my memory of it in a complex setting when I'm under stress and there are distractions. And when people forget or when transfer breaks down, it could be either one of those or both. And it's actually hard to tell whether it's encoding strength. Did people not really fully understand what we were trying to do and what the plan was? Or did they just forget it under pressure because they hadn't done enough retrieval practice? So one of the things I often talk about with uh, with teachers and coaches is I think you want to design slightly differently, whether you're focusing on encoding or retrieval. So when I'm focusing on encoding and my goal is to have people understand the thing that they're trying to do, probably want to go slower, ask more questions, mm-hmm. uh, have it be a thoughtful environment. Um, I would probably want uh, what I would call blocked practice, which is a sustained period of time focused on this individual skill. And when I'm working on retrieval, which is now I know something, but I realize that that's only a small part of, of transfer and now I have to be able to pathway to to 
to recalling that memory has to be really well encoded in my mind and I can find it quickly under duress in a second. And I see a visual cue and it reminds me of the thing I know how to do. In that case, I want practice to be messy and loud and fast and less predictable. And so rather than doing blocked practice, like half an hour of deep reflection on this topic, I might go five minutes on the topic, then go to something else and then come back to it and then go to something else and then come back to it so that it's constantly unpredictable. Uh, so like a, a good example of this, I was talking to a coach in the NBA. When he's installing the offense, uh, he, he was asking me whether they, they, they listen to a lot of music when they practice in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, doctors aren't listening to a lot of music when they're practicing things they're trying to improve. But I think Some, the, the sometimes the in the operating room, you listen, <laughs> you listen to music, but it, it just depends on what's going on, for sure. The met, I think the metaphor will, will become clear here. They listen to a lot of music. And his question to me was, should we be listening to music while we're practicing? And I thought oh, that's a fascinating question. And I think my, and my, this answer could have been wrong, but my answer is when you're working on encoding, no, you shouldn't. Because what you want to do, one of the things that, one of the biggest drivers of encoding strength is attention. Am I able to focus exclusively on this topic and eliminate distractions? So when we're explaining what the movements are in this offense and what my roles are and my responsibilities are, I want absolute attention and focus, no distractions. But when we're working on retrieval, which is we all know the actions, but it's actually really hard to do them under complex circumstances. Now I do want music because the more distraction, the more sort of chaos to the environment, actually the better from a retrieval standpoint. So when they're working on encoding, Everyone is focused. Everyone is listening. They're all gathered around. When they're working on retrieval, there are like three guys on the court. They're all working on different things. There's music playing. There's shouting. There's lots of distraction that causes them to have to struggle more to retrieve. And so I think one of the first questions that we should ask about practice is, am I working right now on encoding? Am I working on retrieval? I don't know if you're familiar with the science of interleaving, but interleaving mm-hmm. is sort of work. I don't know. It's, um, a cognitive scientist would describe interleaving as, um, I'll give you an uh, Sorry for all the sports analogies. No, no, that's just fine. Batting practice in in Major League Baseball. For years, batting practice was almost exclusively block practice, which is you would hit 20 fastballs and then 20 curveballs and then 20 sliders. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to hone what your swing looks like and level your swing plane and shorten your swing, that is an effective activity. But if you're trying to prepare to face a major league pitcher when you don't know what the pitch is going to be, you know, on the eighth fastball, you know, it's a fastball. You are not preparing yourself to retrieve. And so what you want to do is go to serial practice, which would be fastball, curveball, slider, slider, curveball, fastball, slider. You know, the unpredictability, forcing Mm -hmm. myself to recognize the pitch and respond to it is part of what prepares me for a performance environment. And so. Uh, interleaving is the idea of shifting activities, going from fastball to curveball and back to fastball. Uh, and this principle, this, you know, this principle would apply to much, you know, uh, to really anything that I'm trying to learn, which is, uh, you know, uh, I want to block my practice when I'm encoding and I want to interleave my practice when I'm, fo- when I'm focusing, focusing on retrieval. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... Which is kind of the idea behind flashcards, by the way, which you were also mentioning is why sure. flashcards. There's a recent study, by the way, that uh, compared flashcards to a lot of like, you know, uh, it, flashcards remain the best, <laughs> the the most proven method for uh, for factual recall. Okay. And in part, it's because it's always, you know, it's always 
randomized interleaved practice. And you can make it more strategic by causing you know some content to come up more frequently. But uh, but self-quizzing is the best tool for building memory. Mm-hmm. You know, while, while we're on sports, you know, you, you think about the um, the great coaches, uh, whoever that might be. It seems like one of the common threads that they or common things that they always did was they truly focused on the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. You know, they they you know whatever they were doing, they broke it down into the funda- fundamental moves or fundamental uh, whatever yeah. is how is that crucial when you're yeah. practicing no matter what you're doing is 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 really a good teacher is going to be able to break down that that series of moves or that process or whatever into small chunks that you can practice and and, and separate out yeah and, and we talk practice. about in practice perfect practicing the skinny parts which is breaking it down into fundamental skills and then building it back up again and combining those the skills and i think one of the hardest parts of teaching and coaching is what we call the curse of expertise which is um the better you are at something the more you're unaware of what's challenging to a learner for whom it's not as intuitive or even what the component parts of what you do are you know mm-hmm. you're a very good uh, you're very good at something you're you're not often you're good at it because it's intuitive to you and you're so you're not necessarily aware of like what's my footwork here or what's my cognitive process here? You know, you just kind of do it. And so being able to break a complex sequence down into simple, manageable, you know, achievable steps for someone is, is actually incredibly hard. Um, but it's pretty necessary to, uh, you know, like, again, like uh, simplify and then, you know, simple to or simplify and then add complexity as soon as you start to see mastery is kind of the way that I would think about that. And can I, you were mentioning sort of great coaches, and that, that made me think, by the way, of John Wooden, who um, a oh, lot of yeah. people think is the you know, greatest sports coach of the 20th century. UCLA. The UCLA. And interesting that he was an English teacher before he was a uh, before ah. he was a basketball coach. So people used to ask him all the time, you know, John, what's the you know, what's the secret to coaching? And and he has this great adage that I'll share with you. He said, coaching or teaching is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And I think of, I love that phrase because I think it's true. And it reminds us that like my standing in front of the room and explaining to you um, the symptoms of hypertension does not necessarily mean that you'll be able to spot them. Mm. Uh, and in fact, it's almost inevitable that there will be learning breakdowns that people will not under that people will not understand what we're talking about. And so um, I think there are a couple of things that are really important there. One of the one of the most important things in, in a practice environment is creating what we call a culture of error, which are, is which is a combination of like psychological safety. If I make a mistake, you're not going to judge me. You're not going to get mad at me. People will not laugh at me. And maybe like a genuine interest in mistakes. Mistakes are actually fascinating from a learning standpoint and they help me to get better. Because, you know, the pianist Jeremy Dank has this beautiful quotation where he talks about like while the teacher is teaching, the learner is trying to often trying to disguise his lack of knowledge. He's trying to pretend that he knows more than he does because he must please the teacher or because he's embarrassed, because his identity is wrapped up in the fact that he's an expert and he doesn't want to be revealed to actually not know things. But if we can create a culture of error where people are comfortable and even interested in being wrong, then sudden and, and they share their mistakes with us, then suddenly it's 10 times easier to to understand this gap between I taught it and they learned it than if people are hiding it from us. And the other thing that causes us not to be aware of the gap between I taught it and they learned it, you know, which is basically 
people learning things being unsuccessful is our is is working memory overload for the teacher which is there's so many things to think about that it's hard to see accurately what's happening in front of us and i often start workshops by showing this video of like it's it's like a moonwalking bear video or like an invisible gorilla video you might have seen these on the internet somewhere where like someone will show you a video they'll distract you two teams playing catch the ball count the number of passes the team in white makes and during the video like a, a gorilla walks across oh, yeah. the and nobody sees it right uh because we operate with this illusion that you can process everything in your visual environment at once that you see everything that happens in front of you but this is this is this is an illusion you only see a small fraction of what's in front of you and so i think one of the most important things for teachers and coaches to do for practice is to prepare to see better and one of the things that the you know, I read this uh, a book by a group of cognitive scientists about this idea of like the illusion of attention. And they say the best way to prepare for um, prepare to see well in the environment is is to um, is to plan for what you want to see and plan for unexpected events. So when we have someone prepare a practice session, we ask them to do two things that I think two or three things that are really important. The first thing is just to like write out an exemplar, which is what is what do I want to see the person who's practicing doing that will demonstrate world-class quality? Mm. Um, you know, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of research around this. Atul Gawande has that great book, the checklist manifesto, sure. about, you know, a lot yeah. of it's about like how important checklists are to, to medical doctors, right? It's, it's a great, it's, it's a great book. It's such a profound insight, which is I can't for a complex skill, I can't keep everything in my head. So if I write down what I want to see, it's much more, it's much easier for me to diagnose whether it's there or not when when learners are are executing and the second thing that we ask teachers to do is to um, plan for error which is to anticipate and write down the two or three most likely things they think that learners will get wrong if i plan them in advance i'm, I'm more likely to see them when they happen and if i've thought about it a little bit i'm more likely to take action in response to them um, and so i'm less likely to just have a moonwalking bear and miss the mistake and the third thing that we suggest that people do is have a piece of paper in front of them or some sort of pad or clipboard in front of them where they're just like tabulating results, which is, you know, this is basically what we did with the rugby team, which is how often do they do the thing that you want them to do? Mm -hmm. um, and what mistakes are they making? So when I stop, I can say, great, watching you practice, we did a really good job with this, but we're struggling with that. So now to your point about now, let's break it down. Now let's focus on this part of the execution specifically because there's so much information coming at you when you're watching people practice. When I was an English teacher, I used to imagine that I used to tell myself that I was taking mental notes on what my students were doing in class. But in a complex environment with multiple people practicing an activity with multiple steps, you know, the idea that you're taking mental notes is, is self-delusion, right? You have to be tracking the data and tabulating it and almost building a little histogram. And so one of the things that we, you know, a good a good coach should always be writing things down and taking notes on what practice participants are doing, so that I, so that he or she remembers uh, everything they he's seen because he or she has seen because otherwise you will forget most of what you observe while you're observing people practicing. Sure. Well, one thing I wanted to talk to you about that that seen, that's pretty fascinating to me is whether it's you know, primarily when I think about this, I think about it in coaching and sports, but a lot of the great coaches never even really played the sport right. that, that right. they, you know, like I think about Lou Holtz, 
who was yeah. at he was at Arkansas, he was at Notre Dame. You know, that guy probably probably never played a down of football in his life, but yet, you know, there are people who, you know, their their teaching skills or coaching skills mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. not only can that can they not do it now, but they probably have never, never been could. able to never <laughs> could do it well. Talk to yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because I think there, I think it's very true, and maybe there are two sources of that phenomenon. One is the curse of expertise that I was talking about, which is like you're a great football player, and a lot of things that you do are intuitive. And this process that you described, like breaking a skill down into, into its component parts, the more intuitive to you, the harder it is. It's it's or let's just say it's a totally different skill to be able to analyze it and say what are the things that have to happen here. Um. And so I think that's, you know, that's one, that's one big part of why experts are often not the best teachers. But also there's a difference between, you know, content knowledge and delivery, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. this is typical in the sports world, which is people get hired to be coaches because they were successful. Um, but that, that doesn't mean you know anything about teaching it. Right? Sure. <laughs> and just, yeah. and for the most part, just telling someone what I want them to learn is not sufficient to get them to learn it. They have to, they have to produce the idea. They have to talk about it. And so, um, and this, you know, this is why I think the craft of the craft of designing practice and the craft of teaching is is so important, which is it's a totally different skill set that you have to learn. Sure, sure. Alrighty. Well, Doug, we could sit here. I'd love to sit here and talk all afternoon, but we're coming up on our our half hour. Uh, Mark, uh, listen, on, on behalf of Baptist uh, Memorial Healthcare, we certainly appreciate uh, you being uh, on the podcast. Now, one thing I do have is the coach's guide to teaching. Is it newer than Practice Perfect? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a couple of years newer. Uh, okay. it's, it's interesting. It's more it's more directly written to the sports sector, but it's also more science based. So I think a lot of your readers might actually a fair number of, of medical doctors have read it. You know, okay, a, the sure. first chapter is about the role of perception in decision-making and how important where your eyes go and what you're looking at is to making decisions. And oftentimes we coach people to like make a different decision, but you can't make a different decision if you're not attending to the right, if your eyes don't go to the right place and you don't notice the right things. So sure. uh, that, that book is a little bit more sciencey, uh, and so uh, it might be interesting to some of your readers, some of your listeners sure. as well. Sure, we we uh, we like to get really nerdy sometimes. So uh, the, sometimes the more nerdy, the better. But anyway, uh, practice perfect, and the coach's guide to teaching can be found wherever you shop online for your books. And uh, the website is Teach Like a Champion. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of uh, free resources on that website as well. Well, Doug, once again, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Howdy.